if God, if, if in our imaging of God and God is the creator and God speaks the world into being by, by his storytelling, if you will, he says, this is what's going to happen today and this is what I want to see in the story. Um, then how is it that we also think about God's plenitude when it comes to his storytelling? God wants lots of stories, not just one. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Dr. Jennifer L. Holberg is professor and chair of the English department at Calvin University and co-director of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing, the home of the Festival of Faith and Writing which will be happening live and in person next April for the first time since 2018. Her new book is Nourishing Narratives, The Power of Story to Shape Our Faith. In this episode, Dr. Holberg and I talk about the stories, true and false, that we believe ourselves to be living in, and how we might tell better stories for ourselves and others. Dr. Jennifer Holberg, I'm so happy to have you on the Habit Podcast today. I'm excited about your book, Nourishing Narratives. So thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. You have so many great people on this podcast. So just an honor and a delight to get to chat with you today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I'm I'm really grateful for all the great people who are willing to come on. And I'm 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 super excited to talk about uh nourishing narratives. So let's just start. Why don't you tell me what's the short version of what your book is is about? Or you can do the long version if you want. <laughs> I've got 45 minutes. Well, I guess we'll see. Yeah, with maybe the one question we answer. Uh, yeah, Nourishing Narratives really comes out of a couple of places. Uh, for one thing, I've been a, a an English professor for a long time. But um, one of the, the joys of my life is that I get to teach everybody. Um, mm-hmm. I do teach English majors, but I, I actually love to teach the gen ed student. Mm-hmm. You know, the the woman who's going to be an engineer or the man who's going into business or um, and and folks who maybe came out of high school and don't really think they like to read. And uh-huh. here they are in a British literature survey or a class yeah. on epics. And they're thinking, this doesn't mean anything to me. And really what I want to think about, there's a, a lot of books out there, really good books that try to talk to you about what you should read, you know, Mm. read, read, read the classics and become a better person or Mm. 50 days with Shakespeare or something like that. And, you know, I'm not as interested in those things as in having us have better toolkits for our toolkit, I guess, for better tools (laughs) to, uh, to really engage all the stories that are surrounding us. So one of the the big claims of the book is that we're story-shaped people. And by that, I mean, we're just surrounded by them all the time at a personal level. I mean, did your family tell you that you were the the pretty one, the smart (laughs) one? Do your siblings think you're the favorite child, Mm, Uh, even if you don't think that? Right. Uh, And how does that shape you? And then in your church community, in your political community, in, right, there's all these ways in which... We're living with stories, some of which we aren't very self-critical about. Many of them we aren't very self-critical right. about. And yet they're they're either constraining us or they're pushing us in ways. So how do we sort of pay attention to those and put them up against the story of the gospel? So the story of the gospel tells me I'm precious and beloved. Um, and yet so much of my culture and maybe even my family or my church or other communities are mm-hmm. telling me I'm not enough in Mm, some kind of way. And so the book really is in the beginning talking about kind of this big idea. 
And then there's three or four chapters that want to talk about that in a kind of, and all my social scientists that are listening, it's not really case studies, but kind of, <laughs> what if we, what if we told a different story about God? How would that change the story we told about ourselves? So the first couple of chapters are different stories about God. This kind of hinge chapter is what if we told a different story about our callings or about our vocations? And then the last bit of the book is really thinking about, well, okay, so if we can interpret better, how does that help us in hard situations, uh, either personally or kind of corporately? So that's kind of the book. It's it's trying to... Um, use stories and and I, I will give people fair warning it, it comes out from university academics so uh there are people i think who maybe expect something a little bit different than what it is it's a real hybrid uh, i tell stories from my own life because i want you to think about stories from yours but it's mm -hmm. not a memoir okay. um i talk about literature i talk about movies i talk about tv i talk about the bible mostly using stories to help you think about story. So it's not a real preachy book. It's not a real um, academic book. It's really meant for um, lay people. Mm -hmm. um, and, but it's because I think all of us really need to be attentive to the kind of interpretive frame we're bringing to sort of every part of our life. Yeah. That, that length, that, that phrase interpretive frame seems <clears throat> especially helpful here you know we we th because we think of it's it's so helpful to to back up and say there is an interpretive frame through which i'm reading everything that's that's going on around me in and my uh, i'm not just ingesting reality i am the, the reality is getting moved you know put through something which needs to be interrogated needs to be Exactly. Challenge. So this idea that there's just sort of facts, facts yeah. and story are different. That's not, I don't actually think that's true. Um, but as you think about facts, as you think about the kinds of ways you're thinking about the world, other people, yourself, God, yeah. um, all of those are, that's not neutral. Yeah. Um, and so I want us to think about you know, what are good ways? And I think the Bible is really an interesting text because it has an interpretive frame built into it. It tells you how to interpret itself. Like mm -hmm. if you study the Bible, it's giving you like how you're supposed to do it. And then of course we have long traditions. Um, uh, and I do mean that in the plural, right? In in our different faith, faith traditions within Christianity, that help us also think about that. So what what do you what are you thinking about first? But even even little things like um well maybe not little things, but as you think about other people, right? I mean, how are you thinking of them? Is yeah. this a child of God? Well, if that's your if that's your metaphor, well what are the implications of that metaphor? And that if it's not your metaphor, well, what what are you thinking about? Are you thinking about them mostly as sinner or right? And and right. they are sinners. That is true. But what are the what are the implications of that? So yeah, and I, yeah. I just think there's so often we get trapped into something. You know, think about how often you or other people you've heard say, "Well, I couldn't imagine that. I just uh -huh. can't imagine that." Yeah. And that's actually a true statement, <laughs> right? Like yeah. we can't imagine. And so part of the reason we read and watch films and do all the things is hopefully to help us imagine more. Mm -hmm. I think the 
the problem is um, there, there's a really capacious side, right? That can help me understand the world more fully, understand people more fully, see God's creation in all its plenitude. But it can also introduce me to stories that then um, one of the one of my little mantras with my students is narrative normalizes. Hmm. Right. So if you hear any story enough time, it starts to sound like that's the way it is. And that can be great because it can be like, God loves you. And if you hear that every single day and inter- right, that gets normalized. But yeah. if you live in a world where, um, you know, you're never enough or yeah. America is the only country in the world or whatever, right. you know, that starts to become a normal story to you. And you got it. And then it, it starts to become like, you know, that old that old uh, David Foster Wallace thing about, you know, what is water? Yeah. Um, and I and I think that's our problem as Christians is that we often get into these kind of cultural stories or stories mm-hmm. that have been told in church forever um, that maybe arose out of a good spirit or whatever, but they've normalized something that we really need to think about that's not gospel. It's really American or cultural or whatever. And I think that's true in other countries too. I I just don't live in those yeah. countries. So <laughs> sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I just think all of the ways in which, and I, you see it when people get married, right? And it's like, oh, wait, we don't do this on Christmas Eve. Like yeah. we've always done that. Y'all are weird, but that's only because your story, your family story is we open the presents on Christmas Eve and yeah, that's yeah. the normal thing. And all of a sudden you're faced with a new story that says, no, we open the presents on Christmas morning after we go to grandma's and have a huge brunch or, you yeah. know, whatever. Yeah. And I, I think that's a kind of a silly example of it, but that's kind of what I'm saying is how many of the things that we get real upset about are opening the Christmas present on Christmas Eve rather than Christmas day. Mm, yeah. You know yeah. I, you know, one thing that stories do for us is they allow us to make some kind of sense out yes. of the sort of chaotic events around us. Um, so part of the job of a story, you can correct me if you, if you think differently, but it's to simplify. Mm. And yet, that's also the danger of a story is that it right. over you know, there's always a danger of oversimplification yeah well i think too that they can be simple but i think part of what we want to push towards is then multiple stories mm. right mm-hmm. so lots of little small stories i i think the metaphor as christians that we should be pushing towards and really i think this is true for people who who maybe don't have a faith perspective at all but uh, is the mosaic uh-huh. right you need every little bit Um, So the simple, you know, you need the one piece of blue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that would be your simple story. But what you really need is all all of those them putting together to make the bigger story. Mm -hmm. And so I think, yeah, we have a lot of little stories about how I get through the world. um, But all of those need to be kind of coming together into something bigger. And and that that the, the push to one story. Right. Um, <clears throat> there's interesting work, you know, the danger of the single story. That's our problem mm-hmm. is when that one tiny story becomes the only story. Um, so I think it's one of many. And I think it's we're looking yeah. for we, we're looking to be mosaic builders or to be part of that. The other thing is, I think, interesting for us to think about is often in most of our stories, we are the hero. We are the <laughs> You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's the, it's the Jennifer show, right? <laughs> um, and, and you matter not because of who you are, but because of who you are in relation to me. And then, yeah. I, well, that's actually not, I think what, what the Bible teaches us. <laughs> no. 
And and so I think if we can meditate a little bit on why why the New Testament wants to think about God as author, author and finisher of our faith, right? If he's author and finisher, he's holding the pen, not me. Uh-huh. And I become protagonist, not heroine. Um, <laughs> and I think that's kind of interesting too. Um, but also that if God, if if in our imaging of God and God is the creator and God speaks the world into being by, by his storytelling, if you will, mm-hmm. he says, this yeah. is what's going to happen today and this is what I want to <laughs> see in the story. Um, then how is it that we also think about God's plenitude when it comes to his storytelling? God wants lots of stories, not just one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the book has many chapters. And, you know, it always, if you look in the Bible, it's always about more than, you know, one of my favorite things about the the feeding of the 5,000, for example, is, you know, it would have been much more efficient for Jesus and his wisdom to understand exactly how many people were there, which I'm, he obviously could know, um, and just make enough so that they, and the Bible could have said something and like everyone ate their fill. <laughs> but it doesn't say that, does it? It's like, yeah. no, they all had enough and there were leftovers. Yeah. And I think that the and there were leftovers part is really a key part of scripture, right? So is your story asking you to be less or is it asking you to be more? Is it huh. asking you to see yet again the amazingness of God and God's splendor? You know, Calvin, as a Calvin professor, I'm always contractually obligated to quote <laughs> Calvin. But, uh, you know, he has this he has this thing that I love in the Institutes where he talks about, you know, heaven, we call heaven God's palace, but everywhere you look, there are sparks of glory. Yeah. And I love that. But again, notice there are little sparks. You know, it's not fires of God's glory. It's just mm. like everywhere. And I live in a place with fireflies. And I love yeah. to sit out on my porch of an evening and watch those little sparks. There's something kind of magical about that. And so, but Calvin goes on in that part of the Institutes to say, even though there's all these sparks everywhere, scarcely one person in a hundred is paying attention. Mm. And so this book is very much in the kind of Mary Oliver, Frederick Beekner. I mean, all the other yeah. great, great souls in Christendom that are just saying to us, hey, pay attention. Uh, yeah. But that your your life itself is sparkful, right? Yeah. It's, it's everywhere. But everywhere you look, there's all these sparks that we should be testifying to. And yeah. if we did that, how would that change the way we think about all sorts of other things? Yeah. So, yeah, that, that uh, I, I wasn't familiar with that quote from Calvin, but it reminded me of uh, when you quoted Marilyn Robinson in your first chapter, where she says, right. "I spent my life watching, not to see beyond the world, merely to see great mystery." I, I typed this up wrong. Basically, <laughs> I didn't. Yeah, I, I'm not looking for um, extraterrestrial. Right. She said, actually, yeah, I'm going to find it because it's such a great quote and um, I just love it so much. And it's very much the it's very much the partner to the the Calvin, which I also have later in the book. But yeah, yeah, no, she says, um, I have spent my life watching not to see beyond the world, merely to see great mystery. What is plainly before my eyes? I think the concept of transcendence is based on a misreading of creation. With all respect to heaven, the scene of miracle is here among us. 
And I go on to finish that little section of the book to say, what if we began to imagine our ordinary lives as scenes of miracle? Yeah. Because they, so they really are. But yeah. again, that's an interpretive frame, right? So yeah. I mean, yeah. often, you know, and, and you and I are, uh, I don't know, you know, we look like we're in the same age category, <laughs> yeah. sort of deeply middle-aged. But I think what, <laughs> one thing that's very interesting if you're, if, if you've lived into middle age is how often people say, well, it wasn't supposed to be like this. Mm, yeah. Well, that's clearly, they clearly expected, there's a story that they were expecting that didn't happen, right? Yeah. The story has not come out like they thought, or the things that they were, that they bought into as part of the narrative yeah. um, didn't happen. And so now they're having a midlife crisis, they're discontented. And and I think some of that's just getting to an age and realizing you've done the thing and now what's the next thing? Mm-hmm. that's a different way to reframe that right right uh, but how often people say oh is this all there is and yeah. just all of this sort of narrative discontent mm. that our language shows us that we that we that we did have something in mind yeah. um and it's it's not happening and and even the ways i think about this when i travel with students you know um if they are if they are ready to be delighted they are yeah and if they're not and so the same exact things can happen in a day. The bus can be late. The food can be, you know, mediocre. Um, we only see like maybe one cool thing. Um, <laughs> and if they aren't in the right frame of mind, if they're not ready to be delighted, um, it, the day goes south. And if they're mm-hmm. ready to be delighted, it's still fine. We're having fun. And yeah. right? I do think it's a lot about, and so I, I spend a lot of time when I travel with students sort of preparing them for things and preparing mm-hmm. them for like, and hey, we're going to get through this. And But yeah. but a lot of that's just, you know, thinking about the story you want to tell for the day. Is this going to be a, mm-hmm. and, and I'm not, I, I spend a lot of time in the book sort of, trying to go against i think what christian story often does which is triumphalistic or sort of yeah. triple positive i'm not saying that at all but but i am also saying that as we think about those hard things as we resist the triumphalistic story that it's because we have to have a better one that's there and so yeah. how do we begin to tell those those kinds of 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 as the book title says nourishing narrative and kind of move away from the more toxic ones. Mm, um, yeah. And and that even comes with things like, you know, what what what's going to make you successful? Because I think even as we have, you know, good theology in our churches, we often have exactly what our culture teaches us is what makes you successful. Right. Where'd you go to college? Yeah. Uh, what's your job? Uh, how many children? You know, it's always it's always something else. Mm-hmm. And one of the chapters really tries to talk about a, a different kind of how could we be more satisfied um, with who we are and and and, yeah. and 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 try to resist the culture of not enoughness? Mm-hmm. Except not enoughness is what drives the world, all our marketing <laughs> and <laughs> everything. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I mean, even in Christian Christian circles, right? And and I I don't. I, this is not to say I don't believe in sanctification and mm-hmm. that we need to continue to to move into a, a greater and greater likeness of Christ. But just think of how often it's like, you know, do better, be better. And I'm like, you know, I mean, this is one reason I'm actually a Calvinist is because I don't, I don't think I have to do the work. I, in yeah. other words, God is doing it. Um, but my, my response is to, 
is to try to every day cultivate that those habits of mind and heart and hands that are going to help me do that. Um, And that's partly, you know, reminding myself, yeah, I'm not enough. And thank God. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's that great, you probably know it as a Flannery O'Connor story, but that, that wonderful line of hers about the great scandal of the gospel is that, you know, despite our condition, and I'm not getting it exactly her words, but despite our condition, we were deemed worthy of of being um, died for and saved. Yeah, I just happened to have it's, it's I happened to have run across that this morning. In, yeah, that's that, that such God... a great quote, right? I mean, yeah. because I mean, it, it it identifies who we are, and it's one reason I love O'Connor that our basic nature is as is we're freaks, right? And <laughs> yeah. and we don't think we're freaks though. And most of the time in her stories, right, it's the people who don't think they're the freaks that are the biggest ones of all. That's right. But yeah. we, but we're still, despite all of that, despite the fact that we're sort of unfortunate creatures, amazingly, God still wants to die for us. And I think if that's the main story you keep reminding yourself of is you're a freak, but God loves you anyway. Yeah. Like, that's amazing. But it also keeps you humble, yeah. right? Uh, because yeah. I think part of what happens is we begin to say, oh, well, I'm not that bad. And in the beginning of the book, uh, I know you uh, have seen that part. Uh, you know, I talk about kind of dominant Christian narratives that I think, you know, the super Christian or, mm-hmm. you know, the 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 abject sinner. Yeah. And I think most people then start to say, oh, well, I don't have a story. Um, mm-hmm. But of course they do. Yeah. Uh, But their story is about faithfulness and and it also really um, obscures. And I again, I think here of O'Connor and some of her characters who think they're, you know, they've got it all together. Mm -hmm. And of course they don't. And I think one of the things that are a bad, uh, a bad approach to story is my sin isn't really real sin. It's yeah. only the murderer guy or the lady who's on crack or, yeah. you know, it's the bad people who have sin. I don't really have sin. And therefore, I don't really have a story, though. Yeah. Right. Because God yeah. didn't have to save me like those people. Oh, golly, God brought them from dark to light. Right. <laughs> and in my case, uh, did God bring me that far? I mean, you start to see sure. once you unpack this, yeah. how uh, it can be really pernicious and all of a sudden, God really hadn't done any work in your life, and you're not that bad. And you're like, yeah. well, actually, <laughs> <laughs> you know, freak. when I when I teach writing to Midwesterners, sometimes I have to spend some time convincing them that yeah. they actually have a story. You yeah, know, no, that's and, very and they, true. They think this is just the norm. Kansas is just so normal. I got nothing to talk about. You yep. Southerners are lucky. Everything's wacky down there, and you've got all yep. kinds of things to talk about. You got alligators, yep. and you've got you know, and and uh, you know, uh, some know. we think of ourselves as the norm, and therefore, I mean that's that's a that's a narrative frame, right? That right, I narrative, the norm. I could say narrative normalizes, yeah. Right, and what my little small town or my big city or, and it's just yeah, everybody's like me, and but that's yeah. just not true. It's and also, true. we also if we actually believe that God's. Um, you know, saving grace means anything. We have to acknowledge that our sins are also are also there, mm-hmm. and God's work is as powerful in our life in helping us be faithful and kind. and And I mean, as someone who's been in one institution for her, my entire adult life, you know, being together in community is hard. We always say we want that until we actually <laughs> have to do it. Yeah. And then we're like, "Yeah, that guy's so annoying. Do I really have to be on a committee with him?" 
like God's grace extends to you in a mighty way to serve on committees, right? <laughs> and, and I mean, I grew up, I moved nine times growing up. And one one little joke in my family was that the same people are every place. Mm. And that is so true. That's funny. Because you go to the church and that same bossy lady is still there. Yeah. And that, you know, and, yeah. and, but you also still need the same grace and forbearance and love to be in a community with them. Um, and that's, I think, why, you know, when you see people who testify to a long marriage or people who've been in an institution a long time and they've been, you know, they've made it through, mm-hmm. they have a very interesting story because that took a lot of God's grace uh, yeah. just as much as I think it is to take someone. And I don't want to dismiss, you know, dramatic stories of um you know god's rescue or mm-hmm. someone being in a in a what seems like a really impossible place of addiction or something like that those are all really wonderful stories too mm-hmm. but i think sometimes uh people who grow up in church if that th- they think that's the only story yeah and again so reductive mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. and not god god has so many sparks right yeah and so we got to know that guys but also the other lady who just seemed to you know, run the little shop on Main Street for mm-hmm. 50 years. Um, but that's not boring either. Like yeah. what what's God doing in all our lives? And how do we how do we encourage each other to sort of tell those out? Yeah. Um, by the way, that the uh the the quote from Marilyn Robinson we talked about earlier, what what was that from? It's from her essay on Psalm 8. Uh-huh. Her that early collection she did in the 90s called The Death of Adam. Yeah. It's okay. a really beautiful essay. I, I recommend the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, okay. that's the psalm that begins, you know, what is what is man that God considers him? Mm-hmm. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. You know, I remember that. And yeah. so she really goes through and kind of considers that and uh-huh. why, why humans have been yeah. found. It, I mean, it's very, in some ways, she says she doesn't like O'Connor. She's on the record as saying, yeah, like, O'Connor's not her girl. But I actually think that they're very... She and O'Connor with that same idea about yeah are are be, partly because you know they're theologically both you know astute. yeah yeah no it hurts my feelings for my two favorites to not I know me like too. each other you know me too I I love I love Robinson I've I've had the opportunity to interview her and be with her a couple of times and just always just enjoyed her immensely yeah um, and so yeah the fact that she just can't see her way to O'Connor does kind of hurt my feelings a little bit yeah i think if they had ever been able to meet they would have liked each other oh i'm sure because uh, uh, one thing that people don't always know about robinson if they haven't seen her live is she is a very lively and hilarious person she has a wonderful sense of humor mm. and is very funny and uh very down to earth and i think that just from my reading about o'connor too i think they would have liked each other personally uh-huh. so you know one day in heaven that's right <laughs> That's right. Um, you know, that that idea um, uh, uh, finds its way. The, the idea that that we need to be watching for the the stories around us from from Robinson makes its way into um, Gilead, uh, mm-hmm. where where John Ames talks about the idea that the um, that to the angels, we are we are their Iliad and Odyssey mm-hmm. uh, that they you know, they long to look into our yeah. stories. Yeah, I love that idea. And I think Gilead is a really wonderful example of something that I'm trying to talk about, which is, you know, uh, we were talking before we we got on the air about your background studying Milton. 
And, you know, there's always that, that kind of commonplace in literary studies that, oh, well, the devil is the most, always the most mm-hmm. interesting character. And yeah. I think that, um, that Robert, that Gilead is really an interesting example where the devil isn't. And yeah. I think she's very much trying to write the novel of a good man of a, and I don't mean that he's sort of, you know, doesn't need salvation, but that, mm-hmm. that he's someone who has lived this faithful life in one spot and that he has this very interesting internal life and he's had all kinds of faith struggles and all kinds of um you know sadnesses the death of his first wife and his child and finding you know and so i think what's interesting about gilead is that it's it's such an and i think home too i've written on home with the character of glory again someone who um you know is not your flashy um she's the good girl Right. Yeah. And I joke in the book that my 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 narrative when I was asked to to give my testimony in high school was woohoo. I'm a you know, I'm a boring good girl. <laughs> um, like, wh- what's the fun in that? Yeah. Uh, and I joked with my mother, like, maybe I needed to go out and spice it up a little bit, which, <laughs> you know, <laughs> did not happen. <laughs> but um, but I think when we think that that's the only thing. And so I think Robinson does a, a great service to us. In in showing us in in novel form, kind of what that can look like and how glorious it is, yeah, how lovely yeah. it is. And That's a great, yeah, I, I love that. It's great insight. Let me also say, Satan is interesting in the first few books of Paradise Lost, but his shit gets old by the time that that thing is over, right? I, I agree. I, I think it's really boring by the end. Yeah, it's the I same agree. old, same old over and over again. Yeah, and there's only really so many things you can do as the bad boy. You know, I mean, and the problem with it is, you know, I mean, I think you see this in the romantics, Uh, you know, Byron after a while. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Who's the next person you're going to sleep with? I mean, I guess. Yeah. But it it doesn't at at some point it's it's just not that interesting. Um, Can you imagine being a priest hearing confession? It's like these are the same sins over and over. And and everybody thinks their sins are exciting. And if you're the guy who has to listen to this every day. Yeah. It's, and I think too, real interest is. if you think that's part of what you need to do in the world to be a grown up, right, is to have interesting sins. Uh, I think if you've read enough books, you start to go, yeah, I don't know that it's like it's all been kind of done. I mean, that's why Ecclesiastes is always <laughs> right. Right. There's nothing new. It yeah. might look different and you might be calling it something different. But really, as as an interpretive frame, eh. and, and I, <laughs> I say this to students, I mean, we're about to start school and um you know, I say to them, this is my 33rd year being a professor. And so by this point, you know, there's really not too much that I haven't seen, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of emergencies that people have. Mm-hmm. And I can deal with it. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's new for you. Um, yeah. And it feels overwhelming to you. But I'm here and I won't be surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I am, well, OK, but we'll deal with that. But yeah. typically I'm not surprised. <laughs> I'm not surprised when you get homesick a couple weeks in or when you yeah. haven't done your work or, yeah. you know, it, it, and I think I just want to lower their anxieties to say, you know, I have seen this and you'll yeah. be OK and I'm here to help. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I was, I was, um, one of the metaphors I love of high, of Christian higher education is that we ought to be at rafters together, but if you fall out of the boat, I'm going to get you back in. Uh-huh. It's okay, Right. <laughs> but I think so often students struggle in school, partly because they have this narrative. They're embarrassed 
they're, you know, they feel ashamed, but all of those things. And I think there's so much great work out there by social scientist, Brene Brown. I I adore because she's all about breaking that narrative that is trapping you in shame or fear or whatever it is. And I think, you know, when God, when, when Jesus talks about the abundant life, he, that that's true. But what, what does that look like then? What does the abundant life look like? It's not just stuff. It, in fact, it's not yeah. really stuff. Yeah. Um, it's really a, a mindset where you're going to have enough. Um, yeah. It's, uh, you know, I talk in the book about Walter Brueggemann that and his famous book from the 70s, you know, about, uh, uh, you know, having having a mindset of either uh, plenitude or or lack and you know uh-huh. that the israelites really struggle with that like at least if we go back to egypt well we we have control here yeah. we have to not have control even though god's going to take care of us and give mm-hmm. us enough mm-hmm. that's really hard to trust yeah um yeah. in the abstract when you're that narrative of lack is so uh again it's it's it, it, it's really good for controlling other people if you can keep yep. them in the in the mindset of lack and i'm the one person i alone can fix it Yep. You know, that's exactly. a really good way to to keep people in line, under control, in my power. Um, yeah. And, and I think that happens in churches. I think it happens in governments. I think it right. Because partly it's really hard to trust that God's got you. Yeah. And if you're guaranteed your next meal and I, people are really always willing to make themselves smaller mm. if they feel that there's, you know, comfort there. And so I think we have to keep reminding ourselves about how God doesn't want us to be less. And we shouldn't yeah. be in any kind of relationships, whether with our churches or with our intimate partners or with our mm-hmm. parents, whoever it is, if they're asking you to be less, then that's that's really not of God. Um, and how do we help each other be more? Because God really wants us to be more. Yeah. Um, and and the world is full of more. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I just, you look at nature and there's just, you know, biodiversity is the most, like a, such an important concept. Um, mm-hmm. So how do we cultivate, you know, I, I talk in the book, T.S. Eliot and the Four Quartets has this wonderful thing that says he'll know he was, he, you know, he'll know he was a, had, had a successful life because he nourished the life of significant soil. Mm. And I love that. I think that's, that's lovely. In other words, all you got to be is good dirt. (laughs) And, um, and I think in a world where it's like, where, you know, what was your latest thing? And um, it's made me laugh a little bit. My book came out July 25th and people are already like, what's the next one? I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That's, and it it was a kind thing to think that I would have a next one, but also like, you know, what have you done for me lately? (laughs) Um, And it's always, Oh, you got married when you having children. Oh, you have children. Yeah. You're doing this. Oh, what if we just kind of were in the thing, right? Mm-hmm. What if if today, yeah. um, you know, I'm a single person and, and students will say to me, well, Professor Holberg, when were you called to be single? And I'm like, you know, there was no day or time, <laughs> just like lay what, you know, way led to way. And mm-hmm. as you're thinking about that in your own life, you know, everyone's so future oriented that they're never in their in their present. Yeah. And today I got enough to do. I'm a sister. (laughs) I'm a daughter. I'm a professor. I'm a colleague. I'm a friend. I got a lot to do. And so what if if I'm always thinking about what I'm not? Yeah. um, It never lets me be who I am. Yeah. 
And that's not to say that people shouldn't plan or or hope for things. But I also think today, wow, I got a lot. Yeah. There is so much filling up my life. And um, and if I if I can meditate on that and be grateful and thankful for that and think about all of the things I get to do rather yeah. than what I'm not doing, I'm yeah. like, actually, I don't have time for this other thing. <laughs> <laughs> You know uh, but, I mean? but that's also a question of a narrative frame, right? We, yeah, exactly. We, when you get married, the next question is, when are you going to have kids? And when you have right. kids, the next question is, what are you going to do for empty nesting you know, or, or whatever? We, we've got this idea. And you've already mentioned the idea of, of uh, you've related midlife crises to these stories, but mm-hmm. I'd never thought about it before. But every midlife crisis that's ever happened was because I had a narrative and this is yep. not what the narrative is turning out to be. That's exactly right. Instead of receiving what I'd have re- been given, I've got this idea of of way things are supposed to be. Yes, and I think we always are expecting a story, yeah. right? There's a I I quote in the book, um, uh, you you know John Edwards, the presidential yeah. candidate who flamed out and mm-hmm. and uh, was unfaithful in his marriage, and they. They uh, the the Detroit Free Press interviewed his wife, um, and she she said they sort of said, "Well, how are you?" The question was basically like, "How are you coping with being, you know, publicly humiliated?" Mm-hmm. And she said, "You know, for me, it's about Im- understanding the story I'm in. I thought I was in one novel, mm-hmm. and it turns out I was in another one." Yeah. And I've always, that always stayed with me. I thought that was such an interesting way to think about it. Like she was in her own mind in her marriage, thought she was one thing and they were going to do this thing and be the president. Right. And it turns out she's living in a whole different novel. And I think sometimes we're living in the wrong novel. Yeah. Uh, Or, you know, we think, we think we've, we've embraced a story that's just not, that's not thick enough. Right. It's it's the thin soup. And You've you've bought into it because you've you've decided that's going to be the way that you're going to be happy and successful. And when yeah. I get this or I do this or I'm with this person and it turns out it just and we know this, our 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 theology teaches us that that won't be that won't be the thing. And yet we buy into it all the time. So then we're, you know, I I talk with my students about 19th century novels where, um, you know, virtue, virtue is rewarded. So, and I think a lot of Christian teaching around marriage and singleness is about, oh, be virtuous because you're going to get rewarded. Mm-hmm. Not because you should be virtuous, <laughs> but yeah. because Mr. Darcy is coming. Yeah. And just wait it out, but not too long. You won't be more than your early 20s. And, you know, you'll you'll go to Christian college and you'll find Darcy will be there. Well, but then what if he isn't? Mm-hmm. And so then you get to be 30. And if you look at a lot of the singles literature, a lot of it is about, well, I thought I was virtuous. Mm-hmm. Why am I not? Why have I not been rewarded? Or was I not virtuous? <laughs> Does God not reward me? Right. And you can yeah. see how the whole thing is a hot mess. Mm-hmm. And neither, neither, neither side is is the right approach, but there's nothing to replace it. Um, and therefore it's like, oh, well, I, I don't know what to do because my church community doesn't really embrace me until I'm a married person. Mm-hmm. Um, my church doesn't embrace me because they think I'm still basically a kid until yeah. I do certain things. Yeah. Um, and, and I just think, so I think the church has a lot of work to do in examining its own narratives and the ways in which, you know, when we, when we think about all these folks today who are deconstructing or, just downright leaving the church or, 
You know, I saw a thing the other day that said by, you know, the 2030s, you know, a very, a, a much smaller percentage of America is going to be uh, Christian. Um, mm-hmm. Why is that? Well, I would argue it's because our churches are are, are also serving thin gruel mm-hmm. um, and they're yeah. not giving stories that really they've 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 embraced a little bit too much of of the culture um sometimes for good reasons right i'm wanting to fight promiscuity and things like that mm-hmm. like but but not offering a narrative that's really going to be a lifelong thing and they've got it they just are they aren't tapping into yeah it. right yeah you know? yeah i think when you're talking about when when uh, mrs edwards says i thought i was living in one story it turns out i was living in another yeah um i also was reflecting on the the truth that so often we say the story we think we're in, and in her case, maybe she was overly optimistic about what story she was in, but, yes, but so I often we true. say, <laughs> I know my, I know this story. I know how this story ends. Yeah. And the gospel says, no, you don't know how the story ends or That's right. you know, it, it ends. Um, I think it was, it was a uh, beacon who talks about, you know, tragedy is, about what's inevitable and comedy is about what's unexpected. And the gospel is, right. is comic in that, in that regard. You, you right. when I look around and see how things are, are going to play out, it doesn't look like they're going to end well. And then the right. gospel says, no, That's this right. is, turns death. out this is a comedy you're living in. Exactly. Right. And, and, you know, Beekner says what death is only the penultimate word. Right. <laughs> but I do think that that's, it, it's a sense of control, right? Well, I know, and, and it's mm. predictable. I, I love Barbara Brown Taylor has a great little quip um, that she said to me a long time ago at the festival of faith and writing. And it's the idolatry of omnicompetence, mm, right? wow. the idolatry of omnicompetence. Isn't that like so yeah. genius? Yeah. Um, and and I, I just love that because we do worship the idea that if we just can make all the right choices, we can control things. We we're gonna know, like, yep, and then this is gonna happen, and then this is gonna happen. And that's just, just not true. I mean, if you've lived mm-hmm. any part of life, you know <laughs> if you're that paying if, attention. <laughs> right, if you pay attention, you know, like everything is unexpected. Yeah. You know? I fell downstairs and broke my foot. No one planned that. Yeah. My mother died of a brain aneurysm when she was 55. Mm. No one planned that. Yeah. Um, so, so the question is, is, but do you sort of, are you wrecked by, by that? Or do you say, well, like, I didn't know what was going to happen anyway. Yeah. Uh, there's a great little story by Margaret Atwood um, called happy endings. And it's a little short story. It's only like three, two, three pages long. And um, the, the first one, it's like, story a and it's about john and mary and they live this life and they do all the things and they have all you know the children and the house and the boat um and they live to old age and then the last sentence of the little story is john and mary die john and mary die john and mary die and then she's like let's do variations of this and every variation she changes a little bit but at the end it's always john and mary die john and mary die john and mary die and then at the end, the narrator comes in and says, see, so endings don't matter. It's only the middle. It's only mm-hmm. how you live. And when I t- teach that story, I always say, now, what's the Christian response to this? Because the <laughs> end of the story is not John and Mary die, John and Mary die, John and Mary die, right? Yeah. The middle isn't the only interesting part. Um, and so, and all of a sudden that kind of clicks in to say like, Atwood has a very particular point of not you know as a not christian person like that is the story mm-hmm. you know, the middle part is the most important whatever you do 
Um, and the most interesting part of the story is the part that you're living in the middle uh, because yeah. everyone's end is going to be the same. Okay. And we can even think that's somewhat interesting in terms of the way we approach our lives and live mm-hmm. them. But I would say a Christian response to this story is no, that's not the end. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's not, it, you know, it's, it's, it's the fact that we're going to, that we're eternal now and we're going to keep living. So this is only, you know, chapter one of the story. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's another, there's more chapters to come. So anyway, yeah. I, I just right. think that's really, that there's a lot of fascinating, once you start looking for it, you start, and even as you look at the way people speak, you start to see how this narrative frame is really a strong one. Yeah. Um, and I, and I want people to think too about the movies they watch, the TV, the, the you know, all of that. Cause there's lots of stuff that we think about as entertaining that is really, um, um, discipling us mm-hmm. right um yeah. i think what you live with um every day this, this you know you may think it's entertaining you but it is teaching you something and not that we can't be discerning or whatever but mm-hmm. i i do think that it's kind of fascinating you know i have students who tell me you know they have one particular view theologically about their dating life but they also love the bachelor <laughs> right and the bachelor's fun and whatever but if you watch a lot of the bachelor that really normalizes yeah. a certain kind of view. Or if you mm-hmm. love the romantic comedy where they meet cute and hate each other um, and the woman turns down the man or vice versa, but it's usually the other way. And then the the idea of romantic comedy is, no, she didn't really turn you down. She just wants you to work harder. Mm-hmm. Well, all of a sudden, like, that's deeply problematic. If that was <laughs> happening in real life, I'd be reporting you to campus safety. Yeah, right. But in the movies, men are men are men are trained in romantic comedy to know just try harder mm-hmm. for 16 more times show up outside <laughs> her dorm and she'll give in if you hold up a boom box because yeah, you're right there. right yeah Where in real life that is like no i told you no please go away yeah. you know mm-hmm. and i just think there's lots of things like that that if you start sort of looking at the the narratives you start to say wow i'm i'm, I'm really imbibing some things um, that maybe I, I shouldn't be imbibing. Yeah. All right, Jennifer, we got to wrap this up. I, yeah. we, I could talk all day, but I do want to hear you talk a little bit about the Festival of Faith. I usually ask people who the writers make you want to write. In your case, I'm changing the, the last question because <laughs> I want to I want to hear about the Festival of Faith and Writing. Yeah. Um, you co-chair. Right? Yes. You tell me. Yeah, what, no. What? And if people want to know who I who who I who I like to 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 read, uh, read the book because it yeah, is a compendium of poems and stories. And um, yeah, love, love, love so many people. But my my point is basically read like and, mm-hmm. and read what you like and make sure you're thinking about it. But yes, no, I'm delighted to announce that we're going to have our first in-person Festival of Faith and Writing. Um, we had to postpone the 2021 because of COVID and then 2022 was only online. So back in person after six years, excellent. it's going to be April the 11th through the 13th, 2024. And this year we're going to be adding a new day of workshops for people who are writers. We'll also have a few that are for readers and 
and maybe some other kind of spiritual practices. Those are being finalized right now. But September 1, um, we'll be announcing all of the writers. If you go to our website, CCFW, that stands for the Calvin Center of Faith and Writing, who runs the festival, Mm -hmm. uh, ccfw.calvin.edu. You can see our full thing. We also have a monthly newsletter. We don't bother you any other time, um, but it also keeps you up to date on all, all that's happening in our world. So hope people will come. It's going to be amazing. Um, and we're so excited to be back together again, talking about the intersections of faith and writing, both kind of broadly defined. Uh, well, I I hope I can I can. Go. I would love to so see you there. Yeah. That'd be all so right. Fun. Well, thank book. you so much. I, I love the work you're doing, a lot, and um, um, uh, thanks for the f- uh, Festival of Faith and Writing. Um, yeah, my pleasure. So it's, many good things have come from it that. Hands, many hands put it together, so yeah. uh, I can't really take too much credit. There's been thirty over 30 years of people working on it, so thank you for the good work you do here, really bringing wonderful writers and conversations uh, out to our world, so I really well, appreciate thanks. you as well. Well, I hope we can talk again soon. Okay, great. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.